Listen, Kurt Vonnegut has come unstuck in time. And so has our guest on today's episode of Movie Maker, Robert Whitey. He's made a wonderful new documentary about the author of Mother Night, Slaughterhouse-Five, and Breakfast of Champions, among many other incredible books. And it's a documentary he started 40 years ago with Vonnegut's blessing. In the doc, Kurt Vonnegut, Unstuck in Time, Whitey recalls his decades of interviewing the brilliant, absurdist, mesmerizing, and self-effacing author who became a hero to rebel teenagers everywhere way back in the 1960s for telling it exactly as it is, as plainly as he could, while also magnificently playing time, self-consciousness, and the normal rules about what it's okay to say. If you don't know Vonnegut's work, I'd start with Slaughterhouse-Five, which reads like a thinly-veiled sci-fi memoir. Vonnegut was born in 1922 in Indianapolis, where his German-American family was initially prosperous, but suffered greatly during the Depression. When he was 21, in 1944, his mother committed suicide, which was the first of many tragedies in Vonnegut's life. Within months, he was sent to Europe to serve with the U.S. Army in World War II and fought in the Battle of the Bulge against the Nazis. But he was among 50 U.S. soldiers captured and taken to Dresden, a German city everyone thought would survive the war because its beauty was so universally acknowledged. No. He survived the firebombing of Dresden by hiding with other POWs in a former meat locker, which became the basis of Slaughterhouse-Five. The documentary shows how Vonnegut, like so many World War II veterans, downplays the horrors he experienced. He returned to the U.S., worked for General Electric, and began to struggle as a fiction writer. He eventually wrote full-time, living on Cape Cod with his wife, Jane, their three children, and the nephews he adopted when his sister and her husband died unexpectedly, weeks apart. Success finally came with Slaughterhouse-Five in 1969, which arrived at the height of the Vietnam War, just as young America was ready for a powerful and oddly funny anti-war novel. Vonnegut soon departed for New York City in a relationship with another woman, as we'll discuss. He wrote many more great books, and died in 2007, railing against another war, the so-called War on Terror. Whitey has made a series of comedy specials and documentaries, and is perhaps best known for his Emmy-winning work on Curb Your Enthusiasm. He's also won two other Emmys, and earned an Oscar nomination for his Lenny Bruce documentary, Swear to Tell the Truth. And he wrote the 1996 film adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's Mother Night. We talked about what it's like to have spent two-thirds of his life on his Kurt Vonnegut documentary, which is finally out today, and which I highly, highly recommend. Here's Robert Whitey. Robert Whitey, congratulations on the film. Thank you for making it. I'm a huge Kurt Vonnegut fan. Mother Night is my favorite book. I used to live a few blocks away from where he lived in New York. I, I'm just so glad to finally see him celebrated the way that you celebrated him in this film. Um, yeah, he, was a, he was a pretty visible presence in New York. Um, I, I say in the film, he's sort of the anti-Solinger because he was quite available to fans. And I would walk with him in New York and I would see people sort of recognize him. And, oh my God, that's, that's, that's Kurt Vonnegut. And I would see the hesitation about coming up to him. And occasionally they would. Oh, Mr. Vonnegut, I love all your books. You're my favorite author. You're the reason that I, I read it all or whatever. And instead of shooing them away, Solinger would have you know, run for the hills. Kurt would not only say thank you, but he would say, oh, how nice. Well, thank you. What's, what's your name? 
And, you know, do you live here in New York? Are you visiting? What do you do for, he would really engage them and they'd walk away with the story to tell for the rest of their lives. So um, uh, if you if you did ever see him walking around New York, uh, I'm sorry if you didn't come up and say hello because he would have enjoyed that. Well, maybe I can fact check something with you. This is a story that I used to hear around around the neighborhood. There was a comedy club, I forget the name of, I believe in the Murray Hill area, that did an open mic on probably Mondays at about five o'clock, totally dead. No one would ever come in. It was just comedians telling jokes to other comedians. But the story was that Kurt Vonnegut would go in there fairly regularly and sit at the back and get a drink and just watch these open micers and laugh uproariously. Did you ever know him to do that? I, I, I don't know about him doing that specifically, but it wouldn't surprise me. I thought your story was going to wind up with him being on stage, in which case <laughs> I would have denied that. Um, but no, I, that wouldn't surprise you. know, he loved comedy. In fact, our initial bond, you know, as, as we learn in the documentary, I first wrote to him when I was 23 years old. Yeah. I, had, I had my first film under my belt already because I started early. I did my Marx Brothers documentary when I was 22. And I wrote him asking if I could do a documentary on him. And the reason he wrote back to me was he had seen my Marx Brothers film, which was on PBS and he loved it. And he and I both shared this love of you know film comedy certainly from that era. And we really bonded over that. And a lot of our conversations were about comedy and or about movies. And um, you know, he loved film comedy. He loved the old radio comedians that he grew up with. And there were any number of stand-up comedians that he loved. He loved jazz, of course, too. So he, he would have taken in a lot of live jazz in New York or whenever he got the chance. But him sitting in a comedy club watching comics, uh, again, I don't know about it specifically, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Where do you think he found the courage to write the way that he did, specifically to write so plainly, which seems, which I think people erroneously, and you address this in the documentary, think that if something is easy to read, it must be easy to write. And the opposite is true. Well, he grew up uh, with a lot of classic books in his house. I mean, there, there was uh, any number of great books to choose from. And he was a big reader as a kid, but, you know, he never studied literature. He never studied it as a profession. So I think the simplicity with which he wrote just had to do with who he was. He was a guy from the Midwest, uh, from, from Indiana. I guess we'd say Indiana's in the Midwest, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, uh, you know, he, he just, he wrote like a Hoosier, and he spoke like one, and he thought like one. And, you know, he, he didn't have any notions of being self-important. He wanted, he always wanted his books to be easy to read. And I think one of the reasons that high school students fall in love with Vonnegut is that his books aren't intimidating. You know, you, you have that kind of spinach literature, which are, are those books that are supposed to be good for you to read, but a trudge to get through. You know, you open up, as I did, Breakfast of Champions in high school, and you see those, those drawings and, you know, you read a little bit, you say, oh, I, I can handle this. Um, so it was part of the appeal. It was also part of the reason that so-called serious literary critics did not take him seriously because he was so entertaining and he was so easy to read. And um, that's what I think that was about. But he, he had a lot of ideas about the, the writer's obligation. And he would say that writers should treat their readers like, you know, a good first date, you know, just be interesting, 
don't be intimidating, um, you know, engage them. And, um, you know, it was just, uh, again, he wrote as somebody who did not study writing, but just worked from instinct. In fact, those, those early short stories that he wrote in the, you know, in the late 40s, which is how he started his writing career, um, he studied he studied short stories in magazines. In other words, he he told me, and this is this was always kind of shocking, that he never wrote because he had this deep desire to say anything, or <laughs> or to express himself. He wrote because he had a knack for it, and it was a way to make money. And you know, you come out of the war, and it's you know mid late forties, and you know he was a, he had just gotten married, and then before long there was a kid on the way. You know, he was working as a publicist at General Electric and, you know, making okay money. But if he could sell a short story, he could make more money from one short story than he'd make from months of working at GE. Now we're talking, not in today's numbers, but we're talking, you know, maybe 750 bucks, which as he said, was a whack of cash back then. <laughs> so yeah. he just had this natural ability to, to tell stories, but he studied it too. He studied short stories in the magazines, he was trying, he and his wife were trying to figure out what kinds of things sold. He sort of came at it from a very commercial, um, you know, uh, point of view. And um, by the way, unlike a lot of artists who don't want to hear notes from anybody, who don't want, who doesn't want, who don't want anybody to tell them, you know, maybe you should change this. He was eager for anybody, any editor or anybody at a magazine say, you know, if you change the ending, or if you change this character, you did, you know, he, he wanted that kind of feedback because he just wanted to sell the damn thing. So if an editor from, from uh, you know, Saturday Evening Post or Collier's made suggestions, he would just eat it up and do whatever they told it because he just wanted to sell. And then the first one sold and then he sold another one and another one. Next thing you know, he was, he was making a good living at it. He was able to quit his job at GE, but it was all very financially motivated. But his later novels, Slaughterhouse-Five and Breakfast of the Champions are so experimental and so unusual. Was he still taking notes at that point or was he just established well, what he wanted? Yeah, yes, I'm sure he was. You know, his wife was his big cheerleader and, uh, you know, his wife read everything and she would make comments. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. Slaughterhouse-Five, he wrote in 1969 and that became a big success. And that really put him on the map internationally, really. Yeah. And... Um, but all those great books beforehand, you know, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater and Cat's Cradle and Sirens of Titan, you know, those were like pulp fiction, basically. Those were the kind of paperback books you'd find on those spinning racks at drugstores and bus depots. And they sold for like 35 cents and they barely sold at all. I mean, Cat's Cradle became a bit of a kind of a cult book on, on college campuses. Um, but none of those books sold very well. And then once, once Slaughterhouse-Five came out uh, and became a big hit, then they reissued all those books in paperback and that's when they sold. And that's why we all have them on our shelf now. But, but Slaughterhouse-Five, he started writing, he actually started early iterations of that very early. But when he went to the uh, writer's workshop to teach at the writer's workshop at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, he was surrounded finally by other authors. You know, he, he had a community of authors and they would all talk about writing. And it was really input from these other writers, very creative writers, where he started to 
loosen up. I mean, all of his books prior to Slaughterhouse-Five is great, but Slaughterhouse-Five does feel so experimental because he was trying things. And at this point, he sort of had nothing to lose. You know, the fact that the books weren't selling much, as David Eulin, one of our interview subjects in the film says, he, he just went, he, he just decided to go for it because nobody was really reading it anyway. So if he wanted to get a little crazy and have his character Billy Pilgrim, who has, you know, uh, survived the firebombing of Dresden, Germany during the Second World War, if he suddenly wanted him to go off to this fictional planet, Tralfamador, or, hmm. you know, hop around in, in time, what the hell, why not, you know? Uh, the, the earlier drafts of his book didn't have those elements, but that book, as we see in this film, he just rewrote and rewrote and rewrote and was always experimenting and trying different things and you know, just went sort of nuts, but it worked for the book. It made it, you know, a huge hit. I hope I'm remembering this right, and I hope I'm not mispronouncing anything here, but around Cat's Cradle, he gets really interested in the idea of extended families and creating a carass or carass. Carass, um, yeah. Carass um, of sort of a group that you can belong to outside of your family. He himself has this family that is also an extended family because he takes his, he adopts his sister's um, four sons after she and her husband die very horribly in quick succession. Um, so he has this vast extended family, but then after the success of Slaughterhouse-Five, as you point out, he leaves Cape Cod where he's written all of his books and moves to Manhattan and kind of leaves that family behind. I don't mean he abandons his family, but he leaves that kind of very busy, crowded family life behind um, to go it with, I guess, a new younger woman. Mm -hmm. um, the what? old story. <laughs> yeah, and gets this other sort of extended family of being a celebrity. How did, how did he couch that or how did that? One thing that should be pointed out, and I don't say this as any kind of justification because I don't feel I have to defend. Yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, sure, no, but it, it is the old story. You know, it happens all the time. In fact, I, I always thought it was funny, you know, Arthur Miller's story was very similar. Arthur Miller was a struggling writer and really couldn't get arrested. And then he wrote Death of a Salesman and he'd been married for a long time, wrote Death of a Salesman, huge overnight sensation. Suddenly everybody wanted Arthur Miller's attention and he leaves his wife. And I have this idea of his wife saying, sure, go ahead, leave me. Who do you think you're gonna wind up with, Marilyn Monroe? And then <laughs> Arthur Miller says, well, <clears throat> actually, <laughs> But uh, yeah, so it is the old story. But um, yes, he, oh, the, the point I wanted to make was that, you know, the kids were grown and out of the house, actually, other than uh, Nanny, who was still in the house with her mother and got to sort of witness the shit storm. Um, you know, so the kids were grown and, you know, he was, at that point, he was kind of bored. You know, he, Nanny told me that, he, you know, he would say to her, beware of the empty nest syndrome. It's yeah. a real and it is for a lot of people and you know I think he always wanted that taste of fame and you know he was a struggling writer and finally it happened and he got he got sucked into it for better or worse and um but yes he still believed in the notion of extended family now he wasn't always talking about your literal family yes right. it could be you know he had extended family at Iowa this extended family of writers you know when he did go to New York in 1970 it was ostensibly to uh, 
to do this play, Happy Birthday Wanda June, which opened off Broadway and then moved to Broadway. And that was a family. It was a family of actors and, you know, the stage crew and the director. And that was his family that he'd hang out with. So he was always looking for extended family in, you know, one way or another. We all hear about those people, often famous people, who are very good at dealing with crowds or groups of acquaintances, but aren't so great at interpersonal relationships. I don't feel like he's one of those people. I mean, based on based on your documentary and based on his writing, that doesn't seem to be the case here, right? No, he had many close friends. And if you became a close friend of his, it was forever. You know, I mean, up to the end of his life, he had, I mean, he survived many of these friends, but I mean, he had friends that extended back to childhood. There was a woman named Meiji Faley who's still alive in, uh, in Indianapolis. They were childhood friends. A friend of his, Bud Gillespie, was a childhood friend. Bud just died a couple of years ago. There was a guy out here in LA named Ben Hitz. I mean, I, I, I met these people, I knew them all. They were close friends of Kurt's, um, friends of his, you know, from the war and certainly from his GE days, there was a guy named, there was a guy named Ollie Lyons uh, who lived in, I think, Lexington, Kentucky, uh, who Kurt remained very, very close with, um, you know, going back to his GE days just after the war. So no, he was, a, he was a very loyal friend and he really loved his friends. And even, you know, my friendship with him, yeah, it, it, it was not just a, you know, casual on again, off again thing. I mean, there were phone calls from him, you know, almost every day. Yeah. Uh, a, a lot of, you know, and certainly whenever I went out to New York, we would get together for lunch or dinner and go on these walks. And, you know, once, once, you know, faxes came into vogue, there, were, there you know, almost every morning I'd, I'd wake up and there would be, these were the old, you know, thermal fax papers that would kind of just fall out of the machine and land on the floor. And I was always excited to come into my study here at my house and, and see a piece of paper on the floor because it meant a fax from Kurt. And um, he, was, he was very, very, um, very plugged into his friends. His friends were very important to him. Okay, I have a really dumb question before getting back to maybe something more substantive, maybe not. But thinking of those faxes, the way he signs his name, it's this sort of asterisk pattern, which I noticed is the same as the way that he draws an asshole in Brexit to Champions, yeah. was he signing an asshole into every fax or was that no, just? It, it's, it's not a dumb question. It's actually a very good question. It's a question that I think a lot of people who've seen his signature wonder about. <laughs> and I've thought about it too. And I never thought to ask him. So in other words, he, he'll write Kurt Vonnegut and then underneath will be the asterisk. So is he saying Kurt Vonnegut asshole? I don't know, as a self-deprecating joke. Or I think maybe he just liked the design of, of the asterisk. Um, so I don't know, it's a secret that he's taken to the grave with him, I guess. <laughs> you, I love you, think, you think after spending 25 years with him and doing all the filming with him, I would have thought to ask him that <laughs> on camera, but uh, I, never, I never did. <laughs> um, how did your dynamic change over, I mean, obviously he dies in 2007, you start working on this around 1980, I believe. So well, I, I, wrote, I wrote to him in 82, asking okay. for his permission to do the film. And we started to get together in 82. I actually didn't start filming until 88, because it took me six years just to raise any kind of money to do any filming. And then we filmed on and off again until shortly before his death in 2007. And then, of course, 
I continued with the film all these years. So anyway, that's the, that's the timeline right there. So for 25 years of your relationship with him, you're working on this documentary. He doesn't know when it's coming out. Is there a point when he gets frustrated and is like, are you really making a documentary or did you just want to be my friend or what's? Well, it's, interesting, it's interesting you should ask that. And uh, because there was um, a section in the film at one time, <clears throat> which eventually got cut for no reason other than purposes of the film length. But there was one point where he finally tried to pull the plug on it. He was always very cooperative and we would feel, and you know, by that time, the friendship had taken precedent over the film. I say in the film that, you know, once he and I really started to become pals and hang out, I was a little worried about, you know, the, the, the impact that the friendship might have on the film, that it might sort of jeopardize the integrity of the film. And then it got to the point where we would hang out and I would occasionally think about doing some filming. And then I thought, no, I don't want the film to, you know, to infringe on the friendship. So it yeah. sort of turned around, but um, he was always fine with it. And, you know, he, he did see a very, not even really a, a cut of the film, but just sort of an assembly of clips that we showed at the Museum of TV and Radio, which later became the Paley Center in New York. So he got to see what I was working on. Um, and it was fine if I'd call him up and say, hey, let's, let's film this or let's film that. It was fine, even if it was 15 years after we started doing it. But there was a time where he, he just sent me this fax and said, you know, let's just pull the plug on it. And I talked him off the ledge, of course. I said, that's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> but if you don't want to do any more interviews, certainly I'll honor that, but I'm going to continue with the film. And this gets into sort of tricky territory that I don't want to explore too much right now. But I, 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 there, was, there was somebody in his life, in his world, who could be very manipulative. And I think that person was telling him, oh, why don't you knock this thing off? He, he's never gonna finish this film and you know, tell him it's over. And so he just said, oh, okay, and did it. And then as, as soon as I pushed back, it was like, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. No, of course, if you wanna go on, that, that, that's fine. But yeah, it was, I, it was a very odd moment when I got that fax and he was basically saying, you know, uh, let's, let's end this thing. I feel like I know who that person is and like they may have <laughs> taken an author photo or two. Yeah, perhaps. Maybe. Um, I'm not saying that they are manipulative. I'm just saying that that's who I think you're referring to. Um, that's the secret I'll take to my grave. <laughs> um, God, I have a million questions that I, I don't even, I'm sort of stumped here. Okay, let's go here. By the way, this is why I do films about people that I admire so much. The Marx Brothers, W.C. Fields, Woody Allen, Mort Saul, Lenny Bruce, Kurt Vonnegut, because these are the subjects I could talk forever about. Yeah. E even though doing you know press interviews can be a pain, at least I'm talking about a subject that I love to talk about, so it makes it a bit easier. Well, there's when talking about him and talking about you, there's like 90 paths you could go down. The one thing I wanted to ask is, I think the unstuck in time idea is so relevant to now, especially after we've spent like a year and a half locked in our houses, reliving the past, watching old movies. Did you feel like the Unstuck in Time theme was especially relevant? I mean, the fact that you could go back and spend time with your friend, um, relive a day that you had 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, the, the expression unstuck, un, unstuck in Time uh, comes from Slaughterhouse-Five. It's a reference to Billy Pilgrim, who does not live his life in a linear fashion, but hops around uh, moment to moment at random. And then as I was making the film, 
uh, you know, I realized that that Vonnegut himself during the course of the film sort of becomes unstuck in time because we're visiting moments of his life at random. And then once I entered the film reluctantly um, at first, and then it became clear that was the only way to, to move forward, um, I found myself unstuck in time yeah. because, um, you know, now I'm in the film and we see me in high school and then we see me now and then we see me in the 90s when I'm filming him. And so, yeah, it became, uh, it became, it sort of hopped from being a theory into being sort of a very real practical way that I felt I was living my life and the, the way that I was presenting his. So it, it did become sort of a perfect um, metaphor. But, you know, during, during all the lockdown and all the pandemic stuff, I was mainly in an editing room. The, the, actual filming itself had had stopped by that point. But um, yeah, it's it's odd now sort of slowly reemerging and you know, you know, uh, you know, I, I think of I think of Timequake, which is which is his final novel in 97, where there's this timequake, this sort of hiccup in the in the you know space time continuum, and everybody gets sent back 10 years. Yeah. Um, but they're they're conscious of the fact that they've gone back ten years, but they have to relive those ten years again, and you know they 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 sort of have no free will because they're stuck in their path. It's, I'm not explaining this very well, but but yeah, the, the the last couple of years have just thrown everything off. I don't I don't know where I am or right. who I am or what's going on anymore. It's all very confusing. But hopefully we get back on our we get our sea legs back before too long. Absolutely. I, I do that thing constantly where I say, oh, that was in 1993 when I mean 2003 or 2013. It happens to me yeah. all the time. Well, the older you get, the more you find yourself <laughs> m messing up that, that uh, timeline. Um, when you adapted Mother Night, why did you choose to adapt that one? Because uh, my friend Keith Gordon and I, we wanted to do a, a movie together. Keith was an actor, had started directing, become a very fine director. We both loved Vonnegut. I was a friend of Vonnegut's. Keith actually is the Rodney Dangerfield's son in Back to School, who opens up the door <laughs> and Vonnegut's there. So, so Keith had met him that one day. Um, but uh, we wanted to do a movie together. And I thought, well, maybe I can get the rights from Kurt for, from one of his books, you know, which I did get on a handshake. And we chose Mother Night. First of all, it's a great book, um, but it was something that you could do for not a lot of money because mm. it, was a, it was a fairly contained story when you think about it. In other words, there's no space travel or flying saucers or intergalactic wars as there are in uh, Sirens of Titan, say. Um, so now it was a period film that, that you know, expands from the 30s, you know, spends most of its time during the war, and then it's early 1960 in Greenwich Village. So, you know, as soon as you're making a period film, that affects the budget across the board. But still, the story was a fairly contained story for a Vonnegut book. Um, and we did it for, we had a budget of $5 million, which is, you know, the catering bill on, you know, or the craft services bill on a Marvel film for a week. Um, so we, we raised the money and Nick Nolte signed on and that, you know, got us our, our, our financing and we were off to the races. 
was there anything in Kirby enthusiasm that he found particularly funny? I feel like his sense of humor and your sense of humor and Larry David's have a lot of overlap. I'm not certain that Kurt ever watched Kirby enthusiasm and I never thought to, to ask him. <laughs> Seems odd now, doesn't it? But uh, I know he was interviewed for uh, Indianapolis Monthly when the show had only been on for a little while, it was actually, believe it or not, an article about the making of this film. And this was like, uh, this article appeared in maybe 2001 or so. So in, uh, who knew? But uh, the, the writer of that film, uh, I'm sorry, of that story for the magazine, a guy named Mark Allen, whom I'm still in touch with, said to Kurt, have you seen Bob's show, Curb Your Enthusiasm? And Kurt's answer was, no, that's on HBO. You got to pay for that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought that was a very funny response but um i don't know I, I i don't know if he saw a curb or if he would have liked it he might have found it very annoying which a lot of people do or he might have loved it who knows i'll ask one last thing with kind of a long wind up um when i lived in new york i was working at the associated press and i had access to all of the pre-written obits and of course he had a pre-written obit where you would just fill in the date that someone died but you knew what most of their work was so you could largely write the thing in advance um, and his ended, and I thought so brilliantly, ended with, so it goes, which is, of course, what he says every time somebody dies in Slaughterhouse-Five. When the obit finally came out, someone, I guess not a Vonnegut fan or someone worried about taste or something, cut that line, and I was incredibly disappointed. So I just wanted to ask, do you think he would have appreciated that? Like, oh, would he I, liked? Yeah, that's an easy one, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he would have. I'll, I'll tell you a, a quick story. This sounds like, well, this would be great name dropping in the 70s, I guess. But Kurt Vonnegut, Dick Cavett, and I were having lunch uh, in New York at, um, Love it. if I weren't panicked now, I could tell you the name of where we had lunch. But, um, and you know, I adored Cavett growing up too. So this was one of those pinch me things. How did this happen? I'm having lunch with Kurt Vonnegut and Dick Cavett. But um, the guy who wrote obits for the New York Times was there in the restaurant, the cafe where we were. And Kurt pointed him out and said, oh, that guy. And um, so uh, anyway, as we were getting up and putting our coats on and leaving, Dick and I noticed that uh, uh, Kurt had gone over to the table and talked to the guy. And then he came back and I said, what was that about? And Kurt said, um, I asked him if I could read my obit. <laughs> and I said, what did he say? Kurt said, no. <laughs> But Kurt actually asked the obit writer for the New York Times if he could read his obituary in advance, which I just found very funny. I found it equally funny that the guy just said no. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, I miss him every day and he's still a big part of our lives, my, wife's, my wife and I, and uh, his artwork is all over our house and mementos of him are all over the house. And of course, all the books and everything. So I do get that feeling that he's very much with us, but if I were to go so far as to say that Kurt's in heaven now, he would tell me to shut the hell up and, you know. <laughs> uh, that, he always said that, you know, when I die, God forbid when I die, I hope you'll all say Kurt's in heaven now. And then he followed that up by saying, that's my favorite joke. That was Robert Whitey, director of Kurt Vonnegut, Unstuck in Time, which is now in theaters and available for home viewing, however you like to view movies at home. I'm Tim Malloy from Movie Maker. Visit us anytime at moviemaker.com. And if any of your relatives act like jerks this Thanksgiving, try to be the bigger person and not be the asterisk symbol that Kurt Vonnegut put at the end of his faxes. See you soon.